nothing is forever, especially when it comes to running a multi-billion dollar public company. This week in a Fort Knox podcast special, we're going to do a little retrospective. Interviews with CEOs who, for now at least, are no longer CEOs. I've been doing this podcast for more than a year and a half, so I've sat down with dozens and dozens of top executives, founders, and entrepreneurs. Inevitably, change happens. Sometimes the company's board of directors wants a new strategic direction. Sometimes power struggles erupt. Sometimes personal failings come to light. I'm John Ford from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit and subscribe. This time, the lessons from the highest achievers come with an asterisk. Just because you reach the top of an organization doesn't mean you'll stay there. I would add another. Just because these execs are no longer in their old jobs, don't assume they're done. When Steve Jobs was shoved out of Apple in the 80s, he went on to found Next, build Pixar, and return to Apple. Mark Hurd was ushered out of HP and landed what turned out to be a better gig at Oracle. We start with Brian Kozanich, who was CEO at Intel until about a month ago. That's when Intel's board of directors learned he'd had a relationship with an Intel employee that violated company policy. I got to know Kozanich when he took over the CEO job from Paul Ottolini. Brian likes to be called BK, and I quickly learned that he's most comfortable holding onto his identity as an engineer rather than thinking of himself as a corporate executive. The most memorable part of my conversation with him in January 2017, when he revealed a different kind of mistake earlier in his career that almost cost him his job at Intel. So, so I'll give you, I'm one of the poster children for why we did this. We call it copy exactly. Okay. Um, and I wiped out the output of an entire factory for a week. I'm lucky to be employed at Intel sometimes, <laughs> I say. Um, and, and, um, that sounds amazing. How did you do it? So, so we were um, transferring a process from one fab to another fab. And they were literally next door to each other in New Mexico. And, and it was the days before we had to copy exactly. And we had a process that we believed was actually better than the one that was actually running the technology at the time. And if you looked at all the data, if you looked at all the physics, if you looked at everything, it absolutely was better. What we didn't know was when the guys developed this technology, they had a diffusion tube or a, a, a thing that grows oxides that leaked. And if you didn't have that leak, you wiped out everything. <laughs> so we built the technology without a leak. And it was flawlessly better and didn't work. <laughs> and so what we learned from that after, it took us three months to figure out why that didn't work. Right? And that these guys had this small leak that in the first three minutes of the process technology. And, and it took us months to go figure that out. And after that, we said, you know what? We're, we don't know what we don't know. We're just going to copy everything to a T, to wow. the nth level. So was the leak on purpose? No. It was bad maintenance and bad design from the development group. Didn't matter. It worked for them, and and now we copy. So what we say is, we copy as many good things as mistakes, but we copy, and that's it. Now that's that's amazing to me. I never heard it explained that way. That's amazing to me because it flies in the face of so many things that we tried to do, like 
don't do it that way because we've always done it that way. In some cases, you have to do it that way because that's how we did it last time. How do you, how do you balance, right. copy exactly, and Innovation. innovate aggressively? Yes, so here's what we say. Once you get it up and running and working, and you've matched 100% to those other factories, you can have a controlled process of innovation. You can start to make changes in a controlled, engineering, meticulous way. But until you're perfectly matched, and you can show us that you can do absolutely an exact, and, and, and it's not only that you know, it, it works, is I mean, down to every little, like, if they have a defect and you don't, you haven't copied. Until you have that defect, you don't do anything else. Figure out how to make that defect, right? Yeah. And then once you get copied, go at it. Be an engineer. Grow, develop, innovate. Now, how old were you when this, when this went down? Uh, probably about 30, 35. <laughs> Take me into the, the mind, or maybe more important, the gut of 30-year-old <laughs> Brian Krasanich, who has just taken a fab offline for, what, weeks? Yes. Because of you don't you don't know why at this point, but you got to explain to somebody that this fab that's supposed to be work is not work. Like, did you did you think you were going to get fired? Who did you have to talk to? How high up did it go? Uh, it went all the way up to the CEO, and uh, my boss at one point walked into my office and said, uh, "You have about two more weeks to figure out this issue, and if you don't, I've got to let you go." Um, and luckily, a friend of mine and I, we, we then we said, okay, well, we're, we're going to work, you know, until, we're just not going to sleep until this, we solve this. And then, and then sure enough, we found the, the problem about a week into that uh, two-week time period. Um, and, and everything was okay because people realized, okay, it wasn't that they did something wrong. There was uh, uh, something to be learned here. Had I just done something wrong, I think they would have said, good job fixing it, now it's time for you to go. <laughs> but luckily, I, it, was, it was truly designed in error. How are you communicating with the higher-ups during this process? Because I'm, I'm guessing people are wanting, if not hourly, pretty frequent communication about what you're finding. Yeah, so I, used to, I had to do twice-a-day emails to, to, to everybody describing exactly what was occurring. Uh, and then every day I had to go in and meet with them and, and lay out everything we'd learned and what was going on, what, what, what was happening, right? what we were going to try next to, to understand the problem. So it was multiple times a day. Those must have been nerve-wracking. Yeah, I didn't, like I said, I literally did not sleep for, for days upon time. I remember going to the factory and, you know, three days later going home. Huh. Now, you can't be getting better at presenting as you do this multiple times, multiple days without sleep. What's happening to, to the quality of your communication with the bosses here? Uh, yeah, I, I did notice that uh, everything got a little shorter. Uh, I, I, by the end, I was pretty irritable. And, and uh, if they'd fired me, I probably wouldn't have cared too much. But, <laughs> but in the end, it all worked out, right? So yeah, sometimes I think, I think careers are built on as much luck. And you know, they talk about you're being at the right place at the right time and um, uh, a certain amount of luck. So there was bad luck there, right? I mean, definitely I, I, I got caught in you know, a, a massive learning. On the other hand, I became the, one of the poster children and uh, advocates of the whole way Intel does manufacturing now. And so what I always tell people is it's not how deep the hole is, 
that you're in at any one point. This is with a lesson I learned. It's whether you dig down or up. Mark Fields is another executive who'd spent a long time at his company and climbed to the top before his exit at Ford. The bottom line on his departure, the stock wasn't doing well and some within Ford lost patience. Fields was in the CEO seat about three years and my CNBC colleague Jim Cramer thinks he wasn't given enough time to really make his mark. Now, when Mark and I talked in April of last year about his path to the top of the automaker, he said he developed a reputation for volunteering to tackle big problems. When you were heading out of business school and going to work for Ford, some people were like, why on earth would you want to do that? Well, I, um, my, when I was coming out of uh, business school, I wanted to work for a company that made something because that why? was important to me. Because um, I didn't I have an interest in like investment banking or consulting. I, I, I wanted something tangible. And I wanted to work for an American company. Mm. And um, I took the interview on campus with, with You didn't want to make Ford. mainframes? Um, you know, I... I could have gone back to IBM, but the reason I came to Ford was because of the people. Hmm. When I interviewed with them, uh, I asked if I could stay an extra day or two after my interview and sit in on some meetings and things of that nature. And I fell in love with the culture, because to me, just as important as the product was the culture. Hmm. And um, that's, what, that's how I fell in love with the company. And, you know, this was the late 80s when, you know, the, the auto industry was going into one of its downturns. Right. You know, the Japanese were going to take over the whole industry. And when I was graduating, I told my other classmates, they'd say, where are you, you going to work? I said, Ford. You know, I could see kind of the bubble over their heads saying, you know, so how many classes did you fail? <laughs> and, you know, my, what always drove me was uh, being really true to the things that, that, that stoked my fire. Mm -hmm. And secondly, I've always had the, the philosophy, always run to the fire. Run to those really challenging uh, situations or businesses that you can learn a lot, but also contribute a lot. Speaking of boardroom drama, Qualcomm right now has one of the most dizzying situations in tech land. The company's locked in a legal battle with Apple over patent payments. It just fended off a hostile takeover attempt from rival Broadcom with an assist from the U.S. federal government and former CEO and chairman Paul Jacobs, the son of founder Erwin Jacobs, left the board and is trying to raise money to take the company private. Paul Jacobs sat down with me in June of last year and talked about his commitment to Qualcomm. If you think he might give up his fight where the company's concerned, just listen to this. How do you keep from being in the other group going forward where you think the old stuff that you dominated in is what's going to be the future? Meanwhile, there's some other company that's going to be the next Qualcomm that's going to end up eating your lunch. Yeah, I mean, I, so my saying was always if somebody's going to eat my lunch, I want it to be me. Right, right. So, and, and we did that. You know, when we went, when I took over the company, we were known for CDMA, a very certain version of CDMA. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things I did was... And it was CDMA was, versus GSM, right, wireless Right, standards. and then, they, then GSM was going to WCDMA. Mm -hmm. But what we did when I first took over, we went and bought a company that did basically the, the technology that underlies LTE. Because we figured out that was the way the industry wanted to eat our lunch. And we said, hey, we're going to be ahead of this one. And we did. We ended up being very, you know, very well positioned in, in LTE. And the similar things going on in... Um, 
in 5G. You know, people are going to millimeter wave and they have all these ideas about, you know, how you're going to bounce signals around and all, all this stuff. And, and I think we have some very good ideas there that, that other people aren't thinking about, which I'm not going to tell you about right now. But, you're not? Come on. Not that I would understand good. it anyway. <laughs> it's going to be good. You're going to have, like, very low latency, lots of bandwidth to your, to your devices and, you know, mission critical applications, super low power applications, all these things because what we see is now once we put all the R&D to put the functionality into this device, now that functionality can cheaply go out into all those other devices that we embedded in it and make a purpose-built device more more capable. What about all these crazy companies like Comcast who think they're going to build the equivalent of a wide area wireless network out of a bunch of Wi-Fi base stations, of which they have m many, and then kind of fill in the gaps with MVNO agreements, agreements with uh, existing wireless carriers to sort of wholesale uh, their networks. So I'm going to work. Well, a lot of the phones now will do Wi-Fi calling also. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that we've done is we've taken the cellular technologies and we put them in the unlicensed bands as well. And they interoperate well with Wi-Fi in those bands also. But they're much more capable. They can go farther distances, better data rates, you know, more reliability, all sorts of services that you can put over them. So I think that's what's going to be quite interesting. We're getting a lot of actual interest in that for, what, for industrial Internet of Things, that people want to have a high reliability network. They want to be able to control it in their, in their space. It's spectrum that's unlicensed, so they don't have to go out and get a license for it. And then they can know that when they're hooking up their industrial equipment or their medical equipment or whatever thing, it, whatever their application is, that's going to work. And so I think, yeah, I mean, Wi-Fi is already you know, carries a lot of data off of a smartphone, carries some voice off of a smartphone. I don't think that's necessarily the threat. The question is, can those companies, can they actually roll out a real nationwide network that's got the kind of ubiquity and reliability? Do they have the same set of retail storefronts to, you know, service the customers? Because that's always a big thing. And, you know, okay, so maybe there's going to be a new entrant into this into the space. But the, but the cellular operators, the existing cellular operators already get that. I mean, if right. you look at uh, some of the operators' networks, they're mostly small cells already. So they've already made that, that right. transition. Sir Martin Sorrell built WPP by putting together various ad firms, PR businesses, and more into an empire the likes of which the industry had never seen. He resigned from the company in April amid allegations about personal misconduct and misuse of company resources. He's denied those allegations and is in the process of relaunching his career with a new venture called S4 Capital. The head of JWT had some pretty unkind things to say about. No, that was Ogilvy. Oh, that was Ogilvy. The head of oh, JWT okay. so, and that John Johnson really <laughs> had very little to say. He, okay. he, he, he retired uh, gracefully. Uh, it was the uh, it was David Ogilvy who called me an odious little oh. shit, actually, not jerk. Right. Um, okay. Um, because in those days, the Financial Times wouldn't publish four-letter words. Well, uh, but, but we knew that we've come they, a long way since then. But a little bit. Look at who's the, leading the free world. The, the, <laughs> the, uh, David Ogilvy, uh, we knew was going to be very upset that somebody had uh, attempted to to uh, take over his baby. But in the end, you know, we we did a charm offensive. Um, that was also a very interesting story because in the bear hug letter, as we. As we, it was in those days. It was called a fax attack because we sent <laughs> we sent the uh, the letter in on Friday night when the Ogilvy board were up country in in uh, New York State, 
And they, on that weekend, they were moving into Hell's Kitchen, into uh, Worldwide Plaza. Uh, so they were somewhat discombobulated at that particular time. But we sent the letter. But the last paragraph of the letter uh, said that we wanted David Ogilvy to be chairman of the combined company. Hmm. And we guessed that Ken Roman, who was the CEO of, uh, of uh, Ogilvy, and we thought the relationship between Ken and David was not the, the best relationship. Uh, it was unlikely that Ken would show David that letter. <laughs> Uh, which proved to be the case. <laughs> and with all this invective that David came out with, which, you know, the OLJ or OLS uh, comment, uh, after he made the comment in the Financial Times after we launched the bid on the Monday morning or whenever it was after the Friday afternoon, um, I, 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 said, I sent him a letter saying I'd, I'd like to meet him. Mm. And he said, he said, fine. And when I met him, he said, um, uh, we, we talked, and I said, have you seen the letter? And he said, what letter? I described the offer letter. And I said, have you seen the last paragraph? And he said, what paragraph? What last paragraph? <laughs> and he hadn't been shown it. Uh. And uh, when I showed him the letter, you know, I showed him the letter. I mean, that last paragraph had been taken out. Oh. Which was quite extraordinary. So, so he had seen he had a seen version the, of the letter, letter without, without the last that last paragraph. paragraph. Yeah, that was hard to do back then. It wasn't. Just, well, I, however, it was done. He was certainly to, not like, aware use of it. A, a copy machine and put a. I don't know. I've got no idea. But he hadn't seen it. <laughs> so, which was, which we we thought we took a calculated guess that, uh, and even if he hadn't, if he had seen it, we we thought he would have been very flattered by it. He became chairman. He was a great chairman. Uh, did it matter to you that his tone and opinion changed? Yes, it did actually, because he did actually, he, he, he wrote an advert. We asked him to write a, a, a corporate ad after the deal was done because, you know, there was a fair amount of invective and, and people made out of it. And, and the heading of the ad, I've got it in my study back in London, was my first public apology. <laughs> and he goes through this, uh, this, he said, I've never met Martin, but when I did meet him, you know, kindred spirits. Uh, because actually David's history was, you know, he was, he was English. He was born actually in, uh, he always claimed to be Scottish, but he wasn't really. He was born, I think, in, in East Horsley, if I remember rightly, <laughs> uh, in England. And, um, you know, he had, he had gone to Gallup, sold Arga cookers, and started his agency when he was 40 years old. Mm. Started over when he was 40 years old. So there was, there was you know, a, a sort of Englishman or Scotsman, uh, abroad on Madison Avenue, there was a thing, and anyway, it, it worked very well. And uh, you know, his his widow Herta, uh, we still see not enough of, but we still see, and we still use Chateau Tufu, his pink chateau in Poitiers in the Belle of France. So David, you know, we turned him from being um, anti to pro, turning enemies into friends. That's a skill that he and other former CEOs might need to test again. I'm John Ford from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me one of your own. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X dot com slash YouTube. Also, follow me, John Ford, on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. 
you'll see a video from more of these interviews and you can say hi to me live usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Just go to YouTube and search for Fort Knox or go to LinkedIn, Facebook or Twitter and search for John Fort and follow me. Meanwhile, share this, tell a friend, drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or fortnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.